say to you? The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius, Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying, Since though through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were true. So, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any cried or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, While when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here is the reading of God's word from the Acts of the Apostles. What biblical truth might be the most terrifying for those who are not in Christ? And perhaps even hearing the gospel for the first time. Is it the incarnation? Does that bring terror to people? I doubt it. What about the death of Jesus? Does that bring terror to people? I doubt it. Is it the resurrection of Jesus? That might bring some second thoughts to unbelievers in our culture even. Is it the moral teachings of Jesus that bring terror into people's hearts and minds? Don't think so. Thomas Jefferson removed all the miracles from the Bible and he was left with the New Testament that had only the moral teachings of Jesus didn't terrify him. Is it the lordship of Jesus that he is king with all authority? That might bring terror into some people's hearts and mind. But I would propose to you from this passage and others that the most terrifying part of the gospel is in verse 15 of chapter 24 here. 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This is the day of judgment that's spoken of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. At the resurrection of all people, their graves will be emptied and people will rise to the day of judgment. In Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35, I'm going to summarize that whole section that I read. Paul is rescued by the Roman tribune, again, from a plot of the 40 Jews, who with approval from the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem, the ruling party in Jerusalem, he's rescued them, this tribune, this Roman tribune. Paul's nephew hears about it and goes to Paul. Paul then sends him to the, the Roman tribune, and the tribune arranges for Paul to have, and this is, this is the math, the tribune arranges for Paul to have 200 soldiers and 40 horsemen and 200 spearmen to take Paul in the middle of the night. So that's 400 military men and 470 cavalrymen to take Paul in the middle of the night safely to Caesarea, which is the capital of the province. He accomplishes that. Um, he is sending Paul to the governor Felix to judge the charges against Paul. The tribune, whose name is Claudius Lysias, writes a letter to Felix. And in that letter, he basically explains the situation that he found Paul about to be killed by a mob and he rescues him. And then he basically rescues him again from the, the, the council, the elders and so forth who are judging him. And he rescues him that second time. And he says in this letter to Felix, the governor, I've found nothing in Paul that deserves death or prison. There's something about the Jewish law that they find offensive. And the tribune said, I'll send the accusers to you, Felix, and you can have the accused and the accusers in one place. Five days later, Paul shows up at Caesarea and meets initially with Felix, who probably has some idea of who Paul is because he knows something about Christianity called the Way or the Nazarenes. <clears throat> and then the high priest, Ananias, comes from Jerusalem with, the, with some of the elders and with this man, Terulus, who is their lawyer, who is going to present the charges against Paul to Felix. And he does that, and the Jews join in this charge. Well, here's the charge, two verses. For we have found this man a plague. Now, you could think of it as a disease or something, but it's also, they found him to be a public nuisance or a public enemy. One who stirs up riots among Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. That's the charges. Now, before we go into this courtroom scene, one of the things that's important to do when you read Holy Scripture, if there's a, a passage that's really brief about something that happened, you go, okay, that's a brief passage. The Word of God just briefly describes it. If you go to another section of the Word of God and you have a chapter after chapter after chapter describing some event, you realize that the Word of God took that event so seriously they had chapter after chapter after chapter of it. For example, in the Gospels, the last days of Jesus have chapter and chapter of, of what's going on there. 
Because the last days of Jesus, his leading up to his crucifixion, is extremely important. It's his passion, his, his being rejected, mocked, whipped, and so forth. There's a description, a long description of that, because that's more important than his birth, which isn't even mentioned in some of the Gospels. So, why does Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, why does the Word of God spend so much time writing about Paul, Paul's lengthy trial in Jerusalem with the mob and then with the council and now with this Roman governor in Caesarea? Why is there so many chapters about this event? Couldn't he just said, well, Paul was, was rescued by a Roman tribune and he went on to Rome. And there are false starts and delays in Paul's Defense. Well, here's the reason. The, there's, the reason is that Paul is an apostle is very important. It's important for the Jews to know this, who are unbelievers, but it's also important for the Romans to know this, and it's extremely important for the Jews who are Christian and the Gentiles who are becoming Christian to know this. Paul is an apostle called by Jesus, and his mission will be primarily to the non-Jews, the Gentiles of the world. Paul is continuing the work begun by Jesus in his earthly ministry described in the Gospels, and he's continuing the ministry that the other apostles have begun that we've heard about as well in Acts, Peter, etc., and Stephen, and some of the other non-apostles. What are the reasons now, in, in general, for the opposition by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to Paul? It's because he is preaching Christ. It's been years since the crucifixion. Some of, it's probably not the same high priest who was there when Pontius Pilate ruled as governor. Pontius Pilate was governor. Now you have this man, Felix. And from what we know from Roman history, they followed each other. So after Pontius Pilate was removed, Felix came in. It's the Jews who are ruling in Jerusalem who are continuing to oppose Paul because he preaches Christ. Why is it important that Paul's apostleship be so clearly described? First of all, let's, how has it, it come out? How has it come out that Paul is is important here. Well, number one, he's not a nut. He's sincere. We'll see that in his defense. Paul is also not a bad Jew. He's a good Jew. He's, a, he's faithful to the laws of Moses. In the Old Testament writings, he constantly says, I'm here because of the faith of my fathers. I know the writings and so forth. Paul is also not a starter of riots, but a herald, an announcer of good news. And he's also an eyewitness, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is not a self-promoting coward. 
He's not out for some great entrepreneurial scheme or, or trick to gain money from these people and run to like Acapulco or something. Paul is not a self-promoting coward. He's quite brave, it's clear. But he is a loyal and obedient disciple of Jesus Christ who is suffering like Jesus Christ from some of the same authorities. The real issue surrounds the hope that Israel should have that is the resurrection of the dead. That's the real issue theologically and that Jesus is part of that. How is the hope of the resurrection of the dead proved? From the Old Testament, number one. Number two, from the truth that the real Israel that's talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not about kings, it's not about land in Palestine or about the temple, but about having faith in the one true and living God. That's always been the true Israel. The third reason the hope of Israel is proved, the resurrection of the dead is proved, is from the truth that God's rule and God's kingdom comes not by the work of men, but by God's action. God is at work. That causes the true kingdom of God to come. That causes the true Israel to come. That causes the resurrection of the dead. And the fourth and last proof, so to speak, is that Paul has experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so have the other apostles and many others. What the Pharisees don't like, they agree with probably all the other points. They agree from the Old Testament there's a resurrection of the dead. They agree that the real Israel is probably those who have faith in the true and living God. They probably also agree that God's kingdom comes by God's power, not by men's. What they object to, the Pharisees who believe in a resurrection of the dead, object to Jesus being the one who starts it. In, in all this section, from chapters before this to the end of this chapter and even going into some other chapters, the only, quote, real courtroom scene where justice is supposed to be done was not in Jerusalem with the mob, was not with the council in Jerusalem, where Paul had his face beaten because he started to defend himself. It's this passage that we're in today. This is the only real courtroom scene. Let me ask you, there's, it's important to know from non-biblical data some of the history of these characters. This fellow Felix is known from non-biblical data. Historians have written about him during the lifetime of of Paul and Felix. Here's some things we know about this fellow, Felix. The word governor is, is an English translation of the Latin word procurator. Felix was the procurator of Samaria and Judea from AD 52 to 60, so eight or nine years. He was originally a slave and he was freed and he was a slave of the Roman emperor's family. The Roman emperor at this time was Claudius. The infamous Nero follows Claudius. Felix's brother was a freed slave of the emperor Claudius's mother, and his brother was a favorite of the emperor Claudius. 
Felix was a favorite of the emperor and appointed him to be a commander in Samaria and Judea, in which was a pretty, pretty important job for a freed slave. And it seems he was appointed before AD 50 to govern Samaria and Judea. But anyway, he was there for you know, eight or nine years. Now, what happened to Felix is that the Jews in Jerusalem and surrounding areas began to rebel, and they rebelled again and again and again. And eventually Felix tried to hire, believe it or not, he tried to hire assassins, criminals, to kill the troublemakers. There's some evidence that almost every day he was having somebody executed for, for either being a criminal or being a holy man or whatever. So he was used to executing people. He had taken actions to deal with the various rebellions in, uh, amongst the Jews. But eventually um, he's found to be incompetent by the emperor Claudius and removed. As governor, he married Drusilla. It's an important point here. After having seduced her away from her husband. She was one of three so-called queens that Felix had. He married them. The second, just out of sort of interesting trivia, the second queen that he married was the granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra, the very famous Anthony and Cleopatra. So this is Felix, freed slave, given a plum position, where he knows he's accountable to the emperor Claudius, that there are troublemakers in town. And Paul begins his offense, his defense to this man, Felix, this Roman ex-slave. And Paul begins by saying he has basically high hopes that Felix will judge well, because he's been the governor, or the procurator over Judea and Samaria for a while. And he should know the character of kind of intramural Jewish fighting, which this would categorize perhaps. And he knows, Felix knows the way, the so-called Christian way. And his wife is also Jewish. His current wife is Jewish. Now, Paul takes up the charge of causing a disturbance in the temple. And he basically says, it's only been 12 days and I didn't cause any disturbance in the temple in Jerusalem. I did not stir up any in a crowd anywhere in Jerusalem or in a synagogue. And he then goes on to say, they, meaning those who are there accusing him, cannot prove any charges against me except one. And Paul confesses this one to Felix. But before that, he basically says, I'm a faithful Jew, faithful to the Old Testament, faithful to the writings of the Old Testament. I've kept those. I have a good conscience between God and man. But in verse 14 and 15, he says, but this I confess to you, this is to the Felix, the procurator, the governor, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. We would say amen to that. Having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, you know, the Pharisees, they're accusing him, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And Paul repeats that. This resurrection of the just and the unjust. 
He repeats that idea of the coming judgment. And Paul then goes on to say, I brought alms to the people in Jerusalem. I had money for them, for the poor. I worshipped at the temple. I was purified. I did all that I had to do to go to the temple to be pure there. So he was in a state of ritual purification when he was in the temple. So he's demonstrating by what he's saying and by his past actions that he's a faithful Jew. So Paul is basically saying to, to Felix, I am totally in line with the written Old Testament and the Jesus movement. I'm, we are totally in sync with the Old Testament, this, this New Testament thing that we're doing with Jesus is totally in line with the Old Testament. There's a continuity between Paul being an Old Testament Jew and now being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying that there's a continuity. Then Paul switches gears and he, like a good lawyer would today, he points out that there's a lack of credibility in his accusers. They weren't present for any of the accusations except the one that Paul believes in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust, which they also believe. So it's a gotcha. He, he says, bring my accusers. If there's any accusers, it's those Jews from Asia who, who claimed I did something bad, but they aren't here. Nobody here has witnessed me do any of these things that I'm being accused of. I did not cause a riot. I did not do this, that, and the other in the temple. And they have nobody here who's witnessed any of that. It's all hearsay. And you can't convict me on hearsay. In other words, the logic is the charges should be dropped. There's nobody presenting first-hand evidence. That should have ended the trial and Felix should have let Paul go. Felix does not want to bring a verdict at this point and let Paul go. Now you realize the tribune has already sent a letter from Jerusalem. The tribune sent a letter saying, I find nothing worthy of death, nothing worthy of prison in this man. Felix says he wants to wait for the tribune to show up. And now, a few days later, Paul is called before Felix and his wife. This is verse 24, 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And this is not real sincere pursuing of the truth on Felix's part about, about the gospel or anything. He wanted Paul to bribe him with money. Got alms for the people in Jerusalem. Maybe you got some gift you can give to me and I'll let you off. So he's looking for a bribe. 
What was the kind of thing that we know Paul preached about the gospel? Well, for example, Paul in Greece told those in, in Greece, being then God's offspring, we ought not to look, think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. That's in Acts chapter 17. That's likely some of what Paul told Felix. Or perhaps from a later letter, Romans chapter Three, the letter that Paul wrote to Rome before he got to Rome, passage that I read a moment ago. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there's no distinction for all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation. And you know the passage. Faith in Christ is what gets one forgiveness of sins. And when Paul in chapter 20 of Acts, a few chapters before this, was saying goodbye to the elders from Ephesus who had come to say goodbye to him. He knew he was never going to see them again. They came away from Ephesus to, to meet with Paul. And Paul basically said this, I have a clear conscience. I have, tests, I have been testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Summary of what he's been telling everyone, everywhere. And then to Titus, who's one of the, the first non-apostle pastors, along with Timothy, he wrote to Titus, how should Titus proceed as a minister of the word of God in the New Testament? And here's what he says to Titus in chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now Paul's saying that to Titus. Paul's an apostle. When he's standing before Felix explaining the gospel, don't you think he's going to say something very similar? Felix was out of control with lust for his wife. He seduced her from another man. Drusilla is the result of an adulterous affair he had. And he went on to have two more weddings, so-called. Felix should be scared out of his mind. That God is a God who wants you to live a self-controlled life, a godly life. And there's going to be a judgment coming? The coming judgment, Felix. If he had any kind of conscience, he would have known. Paul is talking about everyone being a sinner, being guilty before the judge of all. 
Felix was afraid. He was terrified. There's another way of putting it. He was terrified of what Paul was saying. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, what are you? You're the unjust. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, at the resurrection of all, you will be condemned. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, who gives you self-control and an ability to do godly living in this present world, you'll be condemned as lawless. We don't have the exact words that Paul told Felix, but we have Felix's response. He was terrified. The conclusion from this passage is that Paul, the apostle, defended himself beautifully time and time and time again with the mob in Jerusalem, then with the the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem, and here with those same Jewish rulers accusing him, he just flattens their, their accusations by saying, you haven't seen any of these things except one. Paul is being a witness to Jesus Christ to everyone. The Jewish mob in Jerusalem, to the ruling council in Jerusalem, to the ruling council into the the Roman governor, Felix. He's being a witness for Jesus Christ and the truth, no matter who you are, he's telling them, basically, repent or perish. This is the time of grace. This is the time to have faith in Jesus Christ, not at the resurrection of the dead. Now, what are the applications for us from this? Well, first of all, let's understand the reason there's so much about Paul here being a good Jew, a really good Jew, and a really good apostle is there one. Believing Jews in the day of Jesus and Paul are one with the believing Gentiles. There's no separation of Jew and Gentile. We are the true Israel. There's continuity between Paul, the good Jew of the Old Testament, and Paul, the believer in Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah who was to come. Continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Faith in the true and living God, faith in the true and living God and His Son who has now come. And Jesus is the only hope. For those who have faith in him, there's no hope apart for that for Jew or non-Jew. No obedience to the law is going to justify any Jew or Gentile. Now witnessing today, think about being someone who tells someone who's never heard about Jesus, you talk about Jesus suffering and dying, rising from the dead. And you talk about he suffered for the sins of, the, of people who have faith in him or something like that. And then you talk about the resurrection of Jesus and resurrection of the dead. And you happen to mention the coming day of judgment and that there will be judgment for those who believe and those who refuse. And you can see the fear in their eyes sometimes and sometimes they get angry. And be careful if you start to talk about the hope you have 
because you're in Christ and compare it to the hope of those who really have no hope because they're apart from Christ. Do that at a funeral and see the stairs. Just do that in everyday conversation and see the stairs. This building was a Unitarian Universalist church up until the 1930s when they gave it to the women's club for a dollar. Everybody gets to heaven. Just die, you get to heaven. And there's no trinity. There's just one God. No three persons, one God, no son of God. That's popular. The coming judgment should be part of the gospel presentation because unrepentant people do not go to heaven by just dying. It's a hard truth. It's a terrifying truth, but it is true. Now the last application here is that Jesus has already encouraged Paul that he will be protected by Jesus through the Romans, through the soldiers. I mean, 400 soldiers, 470 soldiers, that's like overkill almost. But he did that. Jesus got the Roman Tribune to do that, and he's rescued from the plot to kill him. It was the message that Paul was proclaiming that got him to be rejected. It wasn't because he was short, tall, you know, had a lisp or something. He was being rejected because of the message, and you too may be rejected because of the message. Some of you know in your own families there are unbelievers, and they don't like hearing about what you believe. Some people are, talk about Jesus in public school, and they don't like hearing that, or workplaces. Let me give you a summary of what the Westminster Confession says about the coming judgment. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his Spirit unto honor, and be made conformable to his glorious body. Separation. Those who are just who are in Christ, get a glorious body like Christ's. The last judgment has a couple of points that are made here. It says, this is paragraph, uh, Westminster Confession 30, chapter 33. It describes the goal. What's the goal of, the, of appointing a day of judgment? It's number one for the manifestation of the glory of God's mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. Two, it's for the manifestation of God's justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient, both. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the Lord and from the glory of the Lord's power. This is the wrath of Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb. 
Strange to think of a lamb having any sort of wrath, but this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus who's come to judge the wicked. And then it goes on to say, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversary, ad- ad- adversity. So he will also have that day unknown to men. They may, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the truths that are revealed in the life of the Apostle Paul and also from all of Scripture would sober us up to know the the incredible importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that literally eternity hangs in the balance, that there is no human being that we will ever meet who is going to go to some different place than those two that we have just learned about. The resurrection of the just is our hope who are in Christ. The resurrection of the unjust into eternal damnation is also true. We pray, Father, that we would be witnesses for Jesus Christ, not in pulpits, but in how we pray, how we behave, how we explain the hope that we have that we are not going to hell, but we are going to heaven. And may we never be ashamed of that, that gospel. We pray this, asking, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In his name, amen.